On the show today, I'm so incredibly excited to be joined by Kimmy Robertson. Now, Kimmy has one of the most recognizable voices in Hollywood history, but she's perhaps best known for her on-screen performance in David Lynch's Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return. We talk about all of her work and more, so don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. It's so great to be with you here this September. I'm your host, Benjamin, and today on the show we have one of my favourite interviews in quite a while. I'm joined by Kimmy Robertson, who plays the iconic Lucy in Twin Peaks. Now, Twin Peaks is the brainchild of Mark Frost and David Lynch. It was an incredible cult series in the 90s, and then 25 years later, it returned to Scream's with a series that was actually set 25 years after the first two. And uh, it, it sort of picked off, picked up not quite where we expected it to, but it was an amazing series. It, it's, it's constantly thrilling to see what David Lynch uh, brings to the screen. And Kimmy not only talks about her role as Lucy in working on the original and the new series, but working with David himself, and she also talks about her incredible voice work uh, on films like Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid. And uh, we talk about Hollywood in general, and uh, it's just a really fascinating chat. And I do uh, hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Kimmy Robertson. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, Kimmy, why did you decide to pursue a career in the performing arts? It just was very obvious that I was a big ham from the very beginning. I used to always entertain my family. Um after supper to make them laugh and then when I was a ballet dancer and I was in rehearsals and stuff while we were hanging around because there's a lot of waiting when you're a dancer I would do stuff to make people laugh you know do funny moves and pretend like I was a modern dancer and just be a total dork so that sort of led into it. And do you find you have uh, a stronger desire to do more comedic roles because you started doing little bits to entertain friends and family? I love to make people laugh because I love to laugh too. And um, not that into serious stuff, although I love doing Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare wrote some great comedies. That's true. Yeah, you're right. I realized that when I said it. So have you ever performed Shakespeare? I have. I have. In um, the 90s, I did some Shakespeare as part of a class. I was doing a singing class and then a Shakespeare class somehow together. And um, we got to perform some Shakespeare and everyone was surprised how good I was at it. They didn't think that I was... You know, if you're good at comedy, everybody thinks you can't do drama. But everything I've heard is exactly the opposite. I comedy often, yeah. is harder to do I often than find drama. Comedy, comedy is so much more challenging because I suppose the, the level of connect uh, from, from a performance point of view has to be higher. So I suppose, what, what makes you laugh? Stupid stuff. <laughs> really goofy, stupid stuff. Like, I went to a show last night 
where a guy had on a unitard and he had a tummy and then he had long arms like a robot and his robot hands were trying to peel an orange and I was almost peed my pants from laughing because that was so stupid. There is something great about absurdity. It's so funny. <laughs> so um, you mentioned uh, before that you <laughs> d were doing a couple of classes. So do you think that training is important if you want to pursue uh, a career in the arts? Um, I think that's entirely, totally individual because um, some people need the training uh, to give them the self-confidence to do what they can already do. But if they, a lot of times they feel like if they haven't taken enough classes, they, they feel insecure. So in that way, it helps. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of techniques you can learn to help you uh, access stuff in your head. Um, so in that case, it's good, but I think you can overtrain too. Mm. But obviously, it's totally up to the individual. Of course. And now you've done both voice work and on-screen performance. Are they very different from a preparation point of view? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Um, voiceover is done the way I think acting should be, totally cold. You just go in and read it, and because you've never seen it before um, and you haven't prepared, you kind of access, like, the universal creativity that's up in the air, and it's usually better than if you look at something and prepare and think you're doing a good job, but you're really not because you're getting in your own way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So do you prefer like, voice work? Voice work is more like a cold reading, whereas with acting, generally you have a lot more time to prepare, and then it usually sucks the first few times you do it, and then you have to get back to it being spontaneous and natural. That's my opinion. Hmm. So with Twin Peaks, which is probably one of the more uh, famous projects you've done, I've heard stories from some of the other performers that you often wouldn't see pages of the script until you were shooting on the day. So did that mean that had that same level of spontaneity that sometimes voiceover work had? Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, good point, David Lynch. Uh, I think whether he has planned that or just does it because it works for him, he tends to hand you, uh, just before you're going to shoot, he says, uh, have you seen the script? And then you say, uh, no. And then he goes, can somebody get Kimmy a script? And then they give you the script and you look at it and memorize it on the spot, you know, you can't really memorize it because you don't have... He always does that just before he's ready to sh shoot, when he's ready to shoot. So you look at it, and you remember as much of, you, of it as you can, and then you do it, and it's cold. 
and it comes out like as you're doing it, as I'm doing it anyway. It's always so much fun to watch how it comes out. Mm. Like the there was a scene where I was talking about the heat, the heater, and whether it's on <laughs> in in where the cells are, or I don't know if you remember that scene, but. Yeah. I got that scene right before we shot. And it's amazing how your brain, you know, looks at something, remembers it, and you do it. It's amazing how that works. It certainly is. And David Lynch is obviously, obviously, you know, one of the most famous directors out there. Working with him, was it very different on set to working with any other director? Oh, yeah. Yes, unfortunately, it's a lot different. I mean, he's, it's so much fun to work on his set because he's, um, oh, he's happy and he likes everybody else to be happy and he's not manipulative. He doesn't try to knock you off your seat he doesn't try to make you feel weird because he isn't insecure he just wants to get the job done and unfortunately that's really different okay guys you don't need to bark it's just the neighbor my doggies were barking at the neighbor that's all right dogs are lovely (laughs) yes um, so in light of sort of recent events that have been going through the entertainment industry, um, and a lot of famous uh, producers, writers, directors have, uh, been accused of, uh, mistreating performers. Have you encountered any abuse on set or in auditions before? Obviously David is lovely and that's fantastic to hear, but I know there are so many terrible directors and, and you know, writers and producers that make actors' lives so difficult. Have you seen a lot of that? No, I haven't. Um, I I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not I'm not that pretty, so I don't get I don't get asked out on dates, and I, nobody <laughs> nobody wants to sexually harass me because they're too busy doing it to all the ingenue. And I've never been an ingenue. Um, I did, when I was a ballet dancer, that was very, very prevalent then, yeah. That was awful. So I know what it, I know what it feels like, but in the world of acting, that has not happened to me. And do you think that this recent uh, bout of awareness will actually change and reshape the industry to be better? Well, it has to do something. I don't know what it will. I don't know what it will do, but it has to change it a little bit just by everybody knowing now what happened. I just can't believe that people didn't know that that happened to women all the time. I find that shocking that, uh, that, that like Anderson Cooper was talking about he was showing some woman saying 
um, you know, she was in her, like, late 60s, and she was saying, well, we have always known that you don't dress provocatively if you're going to, you know, be around a lot of men. You dress conservatively, you act conservatively, and things have changed so much with the way young girls dress and act, and she said, "I'm. this is a horrible thing to say, but I'm really not that surprised. And they cut back to Anderson Cooper, whose mouth was hanging open, and he said, is she kidding? Is she joking? Does, what? Does this really, is she saying this has always been happening? And I was yelling at the TV screen going, Oh, my God, are you kidding, Anderson? You don't know? Really? So that's the thing that's amazing to me, that anybody could not know. That is really sticking your head in the sand. I mean, women, there's certain ways you learn to behave. If you walk into a room and there's one man in there, you... (laughs) And you are looking for, like, the green room or something. And someone says it's in there. You go into the green room. There's one guy in there. You say, oh, I thought this was the ladies' room, or I thought this was wardrobe. You make an excuse and leave. You don't sit there with a man in a room by yourself. That's just how it is. Hmm. It's That's how it's always been. And, I mean, for people to get all shocked and stuff, I find, I find that ridiculous. What I find even more ridiculous... Like where have they been? Is, ...is the fact that people now only think it happens in the entertainment industry, when clearly it's a much more prevalent and, and worldwide issue. It's not just the acting industry that this happens in. It's, it's everywhere. And and you're right. People like Anderson Cooper and people who were oblivious to it really need to to change their views and and to help make environments safer. Yeah, and I don't know how to do that. I really don't. I'm not saying I do, um, but <laughs> certainly men are different than women. And I know when women. Uh, banned the bra and became liberated, they, I don't know, they left some things, not just their bras behind, they left things like tact and gentleness and um, understanding behind in a lot of cases, too. So I think it's a two-way street. Women haven't been behaving the way I would like them to behave. I'm not in charge of the whole wide world, so I don't know. Mm. It's a difficult time. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, a notable notable change from the entertainment industry uh, perspective that I've noticed over the past few years in a different light is the introduction of, of streaming services like Netflix and uh, Hulu. Has that changed 
anything from your point of view? Are there more shows to audition for? Are people moving away from actually watching uh, television? Yes. I mean, people, uh, that's changed everything. It's changed how we watch television to be entertained. I mean, if you want to see a show generally, you know, it's very common. You sit down and watch all six episodes or all 20 or something. And whenever you want to, and as an actor, it's, it's opened up a lot more work. I mean, that's really, really the wonderful part about it. There's a lot more jobs now. And also it's not so restricted by the silly network policies. You know, they use the same nine actors year in and year out for, you know, similar sitcoms or cop dramas. And it's really starting. I mean, although I have to say, I'm still waiting for them to be a little more artistic and not to completely... Um, like ignore shows like ours. I mean, we were shut out of everything. They never even played uh, the Twin Peaks theme on any of the awards show. We weren't ever mentioned. We weren't nominated for anything. We were <laughs> we were shut out. Obviously, that was that was done for a reason. It's because they're sending David Lynch a message. We don't like you. We don't understand what you're doing. What are we watching here? I've heard that at a nickel for as many times as I've heard, what am I looking at? What is it I'm looking at? And I'm like, oh, wow. I, I thought we were more evolved than that, but I guess I'm wrong. Hmm. Well, I mean, so uh, unfortunately, it's it hasn't. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. We uh, haven't really changed TV as much as we think we have. What's interesting is you, you talk about people not understanding Twin Peaks, and I always thought part of the joy of, of watching Twin Peaks, and especially the last series, was that it leaves so much open to interpretation. You are watching something that's visually and intellectually uh, stimulating. It, it's so different. I mean, I'm assuming that you don't get any more details than the audience do, right? No, right. You're right. So does that mean that you can sit at home and then watch you know, the 18 episodes and have your own interpretation of that as an audience member would? Yes, absolutely. Um. I was wa I was watching as a fan along with everybody else going, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And with the, the last season of Twin Peaks, pretty much the entire cast returned. So was that, was that a weird feeling, walking onto set that very first day? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> yes, I... I got out of the van. They drove me to the front of the sheriff's station from 
way down the hill where our dressing rooms were, and two people came over to the door, uh, the, the van door, and I got out of the van, started walking, and there was a person on either side of me with their, each one took an arm, and I was like, what are, what are you doing, guys? And they said, well, we've had some things happen um, the past few weeks, and we just want to make sure you don't faint. <laughs> I'm not going to faint. Are you kidding? Why would I faint? I didn't understand what he was saying at all. And he said, well, we're not saying you're going to, but just, just to be safe, we're here for you. And I said, okay. And I walked up the stairs and opened the door and went in, and sure enough, my knees buckled. And I got a little weak in my knees, and um, they held me up, and I I didn't cry. <laughs> but, I mean, I looked around the room, and there was everybody, the whole crew, David, everybody was there just like 30 years ago. That was something. It certainly would have been. And I mean, it was really fun. And with the original show, obviously it exploded at the time and, and became this, this huge uh, you know, phenomenon. Did the success of the original series change your day-to-day life? Were people starting to recognize you more or recognize your voice even? Oh, yeah. Yes, that happened right away, um, I think. It happened right away, and I started getting all kinds of work and um, gifts, lots of gifts. Would Every time I opened the front door, there would be a basket of fruit or muffins and cookies and flowers and wine from Australia, and um, certainly that was all brand new was really something. It would have been. And I know fans are really uh, obsessive when it comes to Twin Peaks. And there's a lot of uh, conventions and events like that around the world. Have you attended any of those? And how do you find them? I have. I just started doing that. Those um, We've done a few, Harry and I, um, maybe four of them so far. And uh, Harry didn't want to do them. He didn't want to do them. I practically had to kidnap him. You know, Harry goes, mm. plays Andy. Um, and uh, we sat down in the first one, which was in Dallas, and we had all our pictures, and they opened the doors, and the people started coming in in their cosplay outfits and then not in cosplay, just they just were coming in and heading to, towards us and towards everybody else. And Harry went, I love this. I want to do this every day. <laughs> so <laughs> Harry really loved it. Um, I like it. It's certainly fun to meet and talk to everybody. But I really get very tired from that because, because, it's so emotional. <laughs> Very emotional. People, the fans of Twin Peaks are the most 
intense people on earth. They're really amazing. And the stuff they think of and what they do for a living, and uh, it's just really and very intense. Yeah, so do the fans ever bring you theories about the show or even your character that you've never thought of but sort of make sense? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, the stuff people say to me I, that I've never thought of and then um, <laughs> and that makes sense, that makes me feel kind of stupid, that it just went over my head, that it never occurred to me, stuff like that, you mean? Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff like that happens all the time. Their thoughtfulness, their thoughtfulness is amazing. And And if they weren't talking to me, I wouldn't understand a lot of it. I mean, they're the ones that have explained everything to me. I mean, episode, I mean, hour six, it was a fan that said, did you like the dream sequence, the hour that was a, a dream? And I said, which one was that, number six? And he said, yeah. I didn't know it was a dream. <laughs> he said, well, what else could it be? And I said, well, I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't think of it as a dream, but that that's a cool way to think of it. Yeah, it, it certainly is. So that's one example. Now, you talked a little bit earlier about uh, the idea of, you know, watching, binge-watching, as it were, so, you know, people sit down and they watch 20 episodes at once. Do you think that's even possible with the, with the last season of Twin Peaks? Because that would be at least 20 hours worth of very intense content all at once. People do it. They do it. They tell me that they do it. I mean, I've been to events where they all sit and watch you know, the 26 hours of the first two series. Is that 26 hours? Something like that. 28. Yeah, people do that all the time. Could you do it? Amazing. Me? No. Heavens, no. I can't sit still that long. I have to jump around. (laughs) Now, um, another uh, movie that you were a part of was the original Beauty and the Beast film where you were one of the voices. Yeah. Now, that's such a fantastic movie. That movie. That's a part of my childhood. That's my favourite of all the Disney films. So what was the recording process well, like for that one? Um, my agent called and said, can you be at Disney tomorrow at such and such, like 11? I said, yes. And she told me what saved, and I went. And I happen to know them already. So Kurt comes up to me and gives me a script and says, here's your script. And I said, oh, okay. And he turned to walk away and stopped and said, oh, you can do a French accent, right? And I said, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I said, do you mean Disney French or French French? And he said, Disney friends, of course. I said, oh, yeah. So I just read through it a little. Like, I didn't have very long. So I actually only read the first page. And then I went inside. It's uh, a big theater. Um, 
it's a recording studio, and uh, they had her drawn already, some of her. So some of her I was doing the, you know, um, looping it, mm-hmm. and then uh, a whole lot more I was just reading it. And that was it. And then we did, like, books on tape, um, ice capades, uh, a couple, a few years of the cartoon series, and then we did some more, like, straight-to-video movies, like, uh, my favorite was, well, it was called Fifi something. Oh, darn. I don't remember. But it was uh, Lumiere's and my anniversary, and he was <laughs> making, trying to make the perfect date, and all kinds of uh, hilarity ensued. Beepy's folly. That was it. I've got to. I've got to find that. I've. I've never. I've never seen that before. And I thought I was sort of up to date on all the Beauty and the Beast spin-offs. Now you've given me a new challenge for the day. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's and it's. I think you'll like it. It's so cute. It's just he and I, um, and he's just trying to get this date to happen, and I just get crankier and crankier as as the show rolls on, and because <laughs> he's trying to make the date, but he's not doing a good job of it. Anyway, yeah, Phoebe's Folly. It's out there. Oh, I'll find it. <laughs> Trust me, I'll find it somewhere. Um, and, and obviously, Beauty and the Beast was remade last year. Did you see it, and did you have any thoughts? Because I know some of the other voice cast were opposed to the remake. I did not go to see that because that would have broken my heart. That would have broken my heart to go see somebody else do Fifi. You, you get attached to these things when you live inside of them for years and years. I mean, all the work we did was, I mean, I did Little Mermaid, too. I was attached to that, too. But um, not as much as Fifi because, I don't know, it was just, she, that was such a special movie, and it brought animation back to the lot, and it was the first animated feature to get nominated for Academy Awards and win. And after a while, you know, they did the stage show, and they called Fifi Babette, and it was because they forgot her name, you know, because Disney has this huge turnover of people out of college that come and work. Well, they didn't take the time to look up her name and find out that her name was Fifi. So they called her Babette. And that was bad enough, uh, let alone going to see a show that, um, you know, it just, that kind of thing, it shouldn't hurt because that's the way the business is. But when they just completely ignore you and like it's like you're, like you're not even on the earth. Mm. Like it's so bizarre. Like what do they think we think? The people who created those roles. What do they honestly? What do they think we're thinking? 
when they go and make remake the movie, and we aren't even invited to the screening or anything. It's just it's so inhuman. Disney is. That's really Walt would be appalled. And I mean now. Disney is looking to, to buy uh, 20th Century Fox, and they already own uh, Lucasfilm and Marvel. Do you think the corporate conglomerate that is Disney has gotten too big and it's it's forgotten about the actual people that it employs? Oh, yeah. That's obvious. Whoever doesn't think that is an idiot. I mean, that, anything that gets that big is... It can't be, it's moving away from being human and being kind. So Mm -hmm. that's my opinion. Anyway, I like little grocery stores, little restaurants. I like little houses, um, little kitchens. I like little companies. It's just more honorable that way. Mm, it certainly is. So from here, what would you like to do career-wise next? Well, I would like to do... Um, I'd like to do... Uh, what I'm going to do, I should say, is I, I got an iPhone 10 because of the storage so I can make videos to put on my um, website that we just finished last week and I want to do stuff that I want to do and that seems to be the only way to do it um, and have that be either on YouTube or on my website and that that's what I want to do. Plus, I've been performing live um, ever since the show started to air, ever since last May. Somehow I got invited to do these shows um, that were stand-up, and I'm not a stand-up, so I would do a song and a tap dance um, or some goofy juggling and a song and a tap dance, um, and then I'm going to be doing that at, at this thing called Scott Neary's Booby Trap. It's a lot of different acts like that. They even have, last night I went to see it, they even had a girl on a ring on a string hanging from the ceiling, you know, mm. spinning around and stuff. So it's just about everything you can think of um, that's entertaining and funny and he asked me he asked me to do it too so I'm going to figure out what to do and then I'm going to do it well that certainly sounds like a lot of fun but for our worldwide listeners where will your website be what's the what's the web address for that so they can look out for your website and videos it's kimmyrobertson.com brilliant and you've also got social media I believe so where can people find you there Yes, I think um, on Instagram, I think I'm O. Kimmy Robertson or one Kimmy Robertson, something like that. O. Kimmy Robertson. And then, you know, Facebook. And Twitter is 
I have yet to figure out how to put it on my new phone. And so I've sort of abandoned Twitter for a while, not permanently. But again, that they're all just my name. Well, that makes it it's very easy, easy to find them all. And, and YouTube, I think I have three videos on YouTube from the 90s. <laughs> 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 and they're all of my dog, <laughs> but um, I'm going to make new ones. You'll, you'll see eventually they'll be up there. Well, I'm sure. But as yeah. far as working um, on, I like to be, I'd like to have some story arcs on some already established shows that I would like to do. That would be fun for me. And as far as what shows, uh, Stan Against Evil is one that I'd like to be on. And as far as anything other than that, I don't know yet. I need people who watch a lot of TV to tell me what I should be on. Well, I'm sure. Stranger yeah. Things. There. Oh, there you go. That'd I'd be like great. a story arc on Stranger Things. <laughs> Well, we'll, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll send this to Netflix and fingers crossed. Uh, to be honest, that is how I would get a job. There's, that's the only way I would get a job because I don't know anyone at Netflix and I don't have uh, powerful representation. Uh, the only way I get jobs is by people asking for me and I've gotten, that's how I've gotten everything. I have never gotten a job ever from an audition, ever. It's remarkable. I mean, isn't that interesting? That's that's fascinating. So, when an audition actually comes up, I mean, is is there a part of you that just doesn't even want to bother anymore? Oh yeah, like most of me, <laughs> not just a part of me, but almost all of me. But I go because it's what you do. That's, you know, when yeah. you see your friends and you say hi to the people that are there, and it's just what you do. So I mean, I know, yeah. But that that is how it works, you know. Really, it is how it works. So, with that, you know, in mind, what advice would you offer to performers who are entering the space now? How can they get their break? Um, I would I would tell them to do plays and try to be maybe a small part in a big play, like an equity play, um, do live shows if you're, you know, comedy, um, go to the things and uh, the shows that you want to be on and like if it's a live show and introduce yourself to whoever's in charge, send off to the people who are the writers and write your own stuff, put, put your videos up online, and be social. You have to be social, like send thank you notes to casting people and junk like that. And never give up. Never surrender. Never. Don't leave town because if you leave town, you probably were just about to get a job. I mean, I don't mean, like, don't go on vacation. I mean, don't 
don't leave. Don't give up. If, if you think acting is what you're supposed to be doing on this earth, then don't give up ever. And stay committed. Do whatever you have to do to live. But call yourself an actor. Be an actor. And don't give up. Thank you for that. That's, you know, has there been a time where you've wanted to give up? Oh, lots and lots. Lots of times, for sure. But then, you know, what? but I am an actor. That's what I am. So... I can't give up on me, but you get depressed and confused and sad and, you know, that's part of it. It's an interesting industry. You know, you you, you willingly commit to to knowing that at some point you'll be out of work and you'll be depressed about it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's a thing, you know, it's just this thing that... You have to do. It's like more important than having children, than having a husband. It's just, it's like um, every minute of every day you're working, you know, gathering information, working on working. It's just who you are. And you know, it might be different for people who have their own series and then go from one series to the next and stuff. But the rest of us who have to, you know, scrape along and go from commercial to commercial, yeah, you do get depressed and you do wonder where your money's going to come from next. But it's in those minutes, in those moments that you you have to say, I am an actor, that is what I do, this is part of it, and you get stronger. And you, you try to figure out what to do so you're not depressed. And trust me, it's never the dishes. <laughs> Never the dishes. I'll Doing remember that one. Doing the dishes does not help. <laughs> hey, I see, I see that you interviewed Greg Grenberg. He was my writing partner in the 90s. Yeah, Greg's, Greg's lovely. Greg's fantastic. I, um, yeah, I, I didn't know he'd done a lot of writing. Ugh. Yeah, we wrote a series called Kimmy in Search of, and we were pitching it all over town. And, um, yeah, that was fun. Fun. Okay then. Well, thank you for calling. No, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. I've I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I, I think our listeners are going to love it. Well, thank you very much. That was my chat with the wonderfully honest Kimmy Robertson. Talking to her has been a career highlight for what I've done on the show, and I hope that you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Well, that is all we have time for today. Don't forget to check out our amazing supporters. We've got Mad Zombie Collectibles, Palace Nova Cinemas, and ZQ Racing. All of their details are in the show notes and, of course, on the website under the supporters section. 
And as always, please don't forget to head over and check out my audio drama adaptation of The Phoenix Files, the best-selling sci-fi young adult series by Australian author Chris Morphew. The uh, series sold thousands and thousands of copies worldwide, and I hope that uh, all you guys who love the books will get onto the audio dramas as well. The audio dramas star BAFTA nominee and uh, Doctor Who himself, Paul McGann, alongside uh, Andrew Hansen from The Chaser, Kurt Phelan from Dirty Dancing, Stephen Mahi from Mamma Mia and Grease. It's a, it's a killer cast. I think you're going to love it. It's on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and phoenixfilesaudio.com. Links are in the show notes. In the meantime, don't forget to follow me over on social media, Benjamin Man McKay on Instagram, Benjamin Man McKay on Facebook, just look for the blue verified tick, and Benjamin MM underscore on Twitter. Well, until next time, I've been your host, Benjamin Man McKay. Bye for now.